You're listening to audio from Grove Park Baptist Church. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.groveparkchurch.net. As we conclude our look today at information that we need and methods we should employ to reach those in difficult spiritual locations, we turn our look and our focus to the church at Philippi. The Philippian church is one that operated in conditions, I believe, very similar to the ones that you and I face here in modern America. Let us recall that Philippi was a Roman colony. A Roman colony in the middle of Greece. It was, as one writer stated, a reproduction of Rome filled with citizens who uh, were veterans of, Romans, of Rome's armies. And they prided themselves in their status as Roman citizens and their observance of Roman culture and laws. Now, in the middle of what we would consider an already unique situation, a little Rome in the middle of Greece, we find an even more unique situation, a Christian church. We find a Christian church composed of people who pride themselves in the fact that their citizenship is in heaven, not Rome who worship neither Caesar nor the plethora of Roman or Greek gods, but the one true God who dwelt among us in the person of his Son, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. These Christians do not glory in Roman values and in custom and their customs, but their values that they hold so dear are the values of the kingdom of God. As they seek to expand God's kingdom, not Rome's here on earth. Sounds a lot like us, right? Here we are, a little outpost of heaven in a culture that looks nothing like and holds nothing dear to the values that you and I hold dear. A citizenship with another citizenship. Paul uses his letter to encourage this unique church here in Philippi in their task to expand Christ's kingdom, employing images that would be familiar to a church composed of people with multiple backgrounds. We find this exemplified here in our text this morning as Paul uses the ideals of Stoic philosophy to instruct the Philippians on how to stand firm in their faith. The question for us is, why is Paul using Stoicism, a philosophy not Christian, to use those ideals to teach these Christians how to be better Christians? Well, first, I believe it is acknowledging something that the average Philippian already held is good. 
in which they would have great difficulty in arguing was bad. You see, when Paul references excellence in the end of verse uh, number eight, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. When he references excellence there, he is using a word that the Stoic philosophers used that described the highest good of man. An idea that I dare say you and I would attack and which Paul is saying to these Christians, if you believed in the highest good of man when you were lost, when you were not saved, when you didn't know Jesus and you held it at such high regard, why not hold it in even higher regard now that you know Jesus, who is the highest good of all man? But second, I think Paul is teaching us something that is important. He is teaching us that good can be found in the culture around us. We spend a lot of time in modern Christianity vilifying the culture around us and disengaging from it. Paul is imploring us in the text this morning to find and to think on the best in our culture and enlist those things in the kingdom's service. Indeed, when Paul commands us to think about these things, he is meaning that we are to evaluate and to weigh. It is something to be done continuously, which is in sharp contrast to summarily dismissing everything as bad. Let me give you a good example of this, I think. One of the best books that I have read in recent years on how to minister in modern society is a book called Knife Fights. Now, before I go further, I know some of you are thinking it must have been written by a Baptist. Not hardly. Knife Fights is a book that details the counterinsurgency strategy that the United States military has employed over the last decade in Iraq. That makes a lot of sense with church work, doesn't it? It talks about capturing the hearts and minds of the people in society as you earn their trust by meeting their needs first before you try to, to speak to anything that you want. Boy, that sounds like a great way to do church work, doesn't it? To go out and earn the trust of people in our community who are untrusting of us and to, to meet their needs so that as we meet their needs, they gain trust. In other words, they gain a relationship with us. And as they gain a relationship with us, then we can go out and we can tell them about Jesus. A book on war strategy as a means to missions. Think on these things. Don't dismiss the culture. So what should guide our study of the culture around us? Well, Paul begins by saying, whatever is true, 
We have a raging debate in our society today about what is true and what is not. And sadly, the determining factor for so many on what is true has nothing to do with its veracity, but it's based on who said it. If it is someone that we agree with, well then of course it's true. If it's someone who says it that we don't agree with and they could say that the sky is blue and we would say, I don't like you, so I don't believe it. Throw in something else. Throw in the fact that we often say that because we have never heard something before, then of course it can't be true. As if the determining factor of truth is our knowledge. I confess to you this morning, I'm stupid. I don't know everything. And so, because I don't know everything, I've got to test to see if everything is true. And when you and I limit our understanding of truth to our own knowledge, then we find ourselves exiled on a narrow island of finite personal knowledge that is not evaluating in the sense that Paul instructs us this morning. Indeed, I fear that instead of using actual truth as the determining factor to help shape the debates that rage around us, Christians are falling prey to this cafeteria approach to the truth, to the detriment of our witness. We are, why are we so quick, beloved, to attack people who pick and choose which spiritual truths they will follow when we do the same with every other kind of truth? Truth is truth. And you and I must remember that we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ who proclaimed himself to be the truth. Remember what he said in John 10? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth abides, beloved not simply because of spiritual certainty, truth can be quantitatively measured through facts and just because those facts do not conform to our narrative does not change the fact that they are facts and that it is truth. Let us always be willing to pursue the truth regardless of where it may lead us because where there is truth, there is Jesus. And let us remember, Jesus said the truth will set you free. James Garfield, President of the United States, took that thought and added something else to it though. He said, the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. How then do we lift ourselves from that misery? We seek whatever is honorable. It's difficult to contain into one word the full meaning of what Paul is trying to convey 
when he says to think on those things which are honorable. It is often associated in the ancient world with holy things. It instructs us to look beyond common and base things to more majestic things. We are, as one scholar noted, quote, to lift the mind from the cheap and tawdry to that which is noble and good and of moral worth. Far too often in our society, our discourse and our culture are on a nosedive to the lowest common denominator. But can for a moment you imagine what it would look like if we decided to always pursue the honorable? To always pursue the honorable and to elevate the conversations of our society to the highest common denominator. To majestic things, to things set above instead of using tawdriness to score quick points. Can you imagine, beloved, if you and I always advocated for that to be done and we voiced displeasure loudly and boldly when it wasn't? Can you imagine how society might change? You say, oh, that's very hard to do. It's not as hard as you think. It requires us to focus on whatever is just and whatever is pure. The word just here should not be thought of in legal terms, but understood as giving to God and our neighbor what is rightly due to them, fulfilling completely our obligations it is what God calls each of us to do when we are told to be salt and light in the world. It is our obligation to our society and to God to be the preservative in our culture which slows down the decay. Isn't that what salt does? You salt hams, right? It's... it's, it's it's March. That means one thing for someone from eastern North Carolina. It's herring season. The nastiest fish God ever created. And what do you do with, with herring? You salt it. You salt it to keep it from decaying. Beloved, when we're told that we're to be salt and light... God doesn't mean for us to just go add flavor to the world. He means to slow down the decay of the world. And we do that. We do that when we're trying to do everything possible to meet our obligations to God and to our neighbor. We do so with the strictest purity. Purity not understood here in some sexual sense. But in terms of motive. The world must see our motives and actions as driven solely by our desire to, be, to better the world, not for our gain, but for the world's improvement. You and I live in a society where rarely do people do something without some selfish motive. But wouldn't it be nice... If God's church was always thought of as the people who did things because it was the right thing to do and they didn't ask anything in return, 
who did things just because they wanted to make the world a better place, not because they wanted anything out of the world. Beloved, if we would want the world to think our motives are pure, it would also behoove us to understand and to focus on believing what is best in them as well. And by doing this, we would, do, we would focus on whatever is lovely. The term here is its only use in the New Testament, and it means to call forth love, to, 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 to summon love, in other words. It has as its heart a desire to elicit from others admiration and affection, not bitterness and hostility. So here's a question for you. Do all of your actions call forth love from other people? Do all of your actions call forth love? Are you even aware this morning, beloved, of how your actions make others feel? Now you may say, well, I don't mean any harm by it. And I would say back, if that's true, then stop what you're doing when you're told it brings harm to someone. Because you're not going to be calling forth love and you may say well I might as well say what I feel right my response would be does your opinion meet the test of Proverbs 25 11 a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver let me read you that verse again. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Beloved, if we can't say what we have to say in a manner that encourages and edifies, then we just need to keep it to ourselves. And I recognize that is hard. So I ask you something. How would you like it if someone spoke to you the way you speak to them? How would you like it if someone was as cutting in their language to you as you are to them? You wouldn't. So let's remember that. Let us remember that we are to think on these things and it would expand our witness tremendously in our world if we thought before we pressed share on social media how it might be interpreted or opened our mouth and gave the impression that we know nothing of grace and love. Let us think on whatever is lovely. Because in the end we are to exemplify whatever is commendable 
In other words, what it is kind and likely to win people while avoiding what is likely to give offense. I put it in, in really simple terms. We may have been married, I guess, about five or six months. And we were playing cards with our friends one night. And we were discussing a discussion. We don't have fights in our house. We have discussions. We were discussing a discussion that we had had. And my dear friend James Whitley looked at me and he said, Would you rather be right or married? problem is I'm not always right though I think I am the problem is is that I'm not always quick to not give offense the problem is I'm not always trying to win people the problem is I'm not always kind now I hear some of you I hear what you're thinking You're saying, but Mark, the gospel is meant to be offensive. And guess what? You're right. It is. To be told that you are deficient in your goodness and righteousness, that you are full of pride and hatred, and that no matter how smart or wonderful you think you are, no matter how much good you do for the world, no matter how much money you have and that you give away, no matter what on earth you do, apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, you will spend eternity forever separated from God is offensive. And because that is offensive, we don't have to be a jerk about how we deliver that message. Telling someone you're not as good as you think you are is offensive. How you say it doesn't have to be and it shouldn't ever be. The veracity of the gospel should be the only thing offensive about our faith. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Ultimately then, the gospel goes from being offensive to being attractive in how we live it out which is how Paul concludes his thought here in our text. Think about these things. Think. Now we think that thinking is done at the speed of thought. And I guess it is. But I actually believe that's more reacting than thinking. Thinking, we sang about it this morning, is to ponder. 
Do you ponder anything quickly? I'll put it to you in, 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 in food terms. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of these things, don't treat them like pudding. Treat them like beef jerky. Pudding. You can just swill down pudding. You don't even chew pudding. If you do, we need to talk. You just get pudding and go. But if you get jerky, first off, you got to take that jerky and you got to go, you got to bite into it and then you got to pull, right? You got to hope and pray you don't pull a tooth out with it, right? And then you got to sit there and you got to. And then if you're lucky, you're going to leave jerky behind in between that back molar. And you're going to have to work to get it out. That, beloved, is pondering. That is what we're to do with all this stuff. And the question is, do we do it? Do you ever stop and ponder your faith? Do you ponder how your faith is expressed in the world? Do you ponder what you say? Do you ponder what you believe? Or you just treat it like pudding? The gospel, the kingdom of God is so great. It's, it's not pudding. It's so great you got to, to chew on it. It's like a book that you finish and it's been so wonderful. You can't even move. You just have to sit there and think about it for a while. And if you're like me, you always want to move on to the next book, but nothing meets you like you just finished that book and you can't move till you do something with it. Think on these things. We live in an emotional world. And very often we react with emotion when thinking should be emotionless. Putting our thoughts together should not be done with, with some sort of emotion. It should be put together with the only emotion I can think of is love and I don't even necessarily think love is an emotion love is a verb it's a choice which ultimately means we don't need to think about them but if you'll notice in verse number 9 he says whatever what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things and the God of peace will be with you it matters very little beloved how much you ponder them if you don't do them. You see, when he says here, what you have learned and received, he's got a very clear point he's making that is lost in our language. The word received means literally to pass on intact. In other words, all this stuff 
that you've thought of, which is truth and loveliness and commendable and just and pure, all these things. And what you have pondered and thought through and, and, and regurgitated again and again and again, and you have come to, to the basic truth of the matter, what you have done with all of these things, you are to pass it on. You and I very often keep it all to ourselves. But we are to pass it on. We're to pass it on to all those around us. We're to pass it on to the culture that is dying around us. We're to pass it on to our neighbor. We're to pass it on to the person that we're to work with. We're to pass it on with someone we see this afternoon at lunch. We are to continually be about the business of passing it on. Not just through words, but through actions. We must not only tell others to become Christians, we must show them what it is to be a Christian. And as we show them the best example of Christianity, they want it. The news has been filled over the last two weeks with bad Christians. I don't have any hesitation in saying that. Because I keep hearing people say the same thing over and over again when they react to the news. It's that sort of person which has caused me to leave the church. Now first off, I don't ever think that you should think, allow someone to cause you to leave the church. But secondly, we have to understand that there are plenty of, plenty of people out in Burlington, if nowhere else, who used to know about the gospel, but now it's far from them, who have never heard about the gospel, and all they've ever seen is people who say they are followers of the gospel live horribly. And they need what is true, what is pure, what is lovely. They need us showing the full exemplification of Christianity and passing it on. And when we do this, did you notice what happens? There again at the end, the peace of God will be with you. The peace of God, which Paul says surpasses all understanding. The peace of God, which stands like a sentinel keeping watch at night over our hearts peace of God which Jesus said the world cannot give you only I can give you the peace of God which is the wholeness of our soul the peace of God which is the perfection of love in our hearts the peace of God which is unflinching hope in a hopeless society the peace of God which causes us to keep our head when all else is going crazy and people look at us and say, well, look at that. What can I do with that? So, beloved, this morning, how well are you modeling these best practices of a Christian? How well are you pondering truth How well are you pondering what is honorable, what is just, what is lovely? 
what is commendable, what is pure. And how are you showing them to the world around us? If, in my opinion, we live out these two verses with every fiber of our being as a congregation, mission alamance will be easy. We'll reach them. It's just a little bork on our, on our part. You know, I have hated being in my 40s. You know why? Because I think a lot. I'm to that point where I've spent enough time of my life uh, that I've lived a life so long, not that long, but I, you know, some of you say you're such a pup, but... Uh, I've lived my life to the point where I'm, I'm really beginning to think back a lot. And I've been thinking a lot about school. And I think to myself, I really wish I had applied myself more. You say, Pastor, you went to Carolina and Duke. Yeah, I know. Don't hold it against me. But I just wished I had studied a little bit more while I was there. Learned a little bit more. Tried a little bit harder. When I get to heaven, God's already got enough to tell me I've done wrong. I don't want him to have to say to me, Mark, you are my son. But you could have tried harder. And you didn't. Because it was too hard. Will he say that to you? Will he say that to you? Let us pray. Kind Father. Give us grace to not shirk from something because it is hard. Give us grace, Lord, to show forth who you are to a world that desperately needs to see a clear picture of you. A world who needs to see a church who always acts as you would act. Lord, Enable us, enable us, Lord, to be ones who would say, model me because I'm modeling Jesus. As Paul said here. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.